this world. All the same, they had upset the peace of heart of two gentlemen from the great world outside Berlybeck. There was a young officer named Lawrence Louvignon who had led a gay life in his garrison town and had run into debt. In the year of 1854, when Martin was 18 and Philippa 17, his angry father sent him on a month's visit to his aunt in her old country house of Fossum near Berlybeck where he would have time to meditate and to better his ways. One day he rode into town and met Martine in the marketplace. He looked down at the pretty girl, and she looked up at the fine horseman. When she had passed him and disappeared, he was not certain whether he was to believe his own eyes. In the Louvignon family there existed a legend to the effect that long ago a gentleman of the name had married a Hulry a female mountain spirit of Norway who is so fair that the air around her shines and quivers. Since then, from time to time, members of the family had been second-sighted. Young Lawrence, till now, had not been aware of any particular spiritual gift in his own nature. But at this one moment there rose before his eyes a sudden mighty vision of a higher and purer life, with no creditors, dunning letters, or parental lectures, with no secret unpleasant pangs of conscience, and with a gentle golden-haired angel to guide and reward him. Through his pious aunt he got admission to the dean's house and saw that Martine was even lovelier without a bonnet. He followed her slim figure with adoring eyes, but he loathed and despised the figure which he himself cut in her nearness. He was amazed and shocked by the fact that he could find nothing at all to say and no inspiration in the glass of water before him. Mercy and truth, dear brethren, have met together, said the dean. Righteousness and bliss have kissed one another. And the young man's thoughts were with the moment when Lawrence and Martine should be kissing each other. He repeated his visit time after time, and each time seemed to himself to grow smaller and more insignificant and contemptible. When in the evening he came back to his aunt's house, he kicked his shining riding boots to the corners of his room, even laid his head on the table and wept. On the last day of his stay, he made a last attempt to communicate his feelings to Martine. Till now it had been easy for him to tell a pretty girl that he loved her, but the tender words stuck in his throat as he looked into this maiden's face. When he had said goodbye to the party, Martine saw him to the door with a candlestick in her hand. The light shone on her mouth and threw upwards the shadow of her long eyelashes. He was about to leave in dumb despair when on the threshold he suddenly seized her hand and pressed it to his lips. I am going away forever, he cried. I shall never, never see you again, for I have learned here that fate is hard and that in this world there are things which are impossible. When he was once more back in his garrison town, he thought his adventure over and found that he did not like to think of it at all. While the other young officers talked of their love affairs, he was silent on his. Foreseen from the officer's mess, and so to say with its eyes, it was a pitiful business. How had it come to pass that a lieutenant of the hussars had let himself be defeated and frustrated by a set of long-faced sectarians in the bare-floored rooms of an old dean's house. Then he became afraid. Panic fell upon him. Was it the family madness which made him still carry with him the dreamlike picture of a maiden so fair 
that she made the air round her shine with purity and holiness. He did not want to be a dreamer. He wanted to be like his brother officers. So he pulled himself together, and in the greatest effort of his young life, made up his mind to forget what had happened to him in Berlebeck. From now on, he resolved, he would look forward, not back. He would concentrate on his career, and the day was to come when he would cut a brilliant figure in a brilliant world. His mother was pleased with the result of his visit to Fossum, and in her letters expressed her gratitude to his aunt. She did not know by what queer winding roads her son had reached his happy moral standpoint. The ambitious young officer soon caught the attention of his superiors and made unusually quick advancement. He was sent to France and to Russia, and on his return he married a lady-in-waiting to Queen Sophia. In these high circles he moved with grace and ease, pleased with his surroundings and with himself. He even in the course of time benefited from words and turns which had stuck in his mind from the dean's house, for piety was now in fashion at court. In the yellow house of Berlebeck, Philippa sometimes turned the talk to the handsome, silent young man who had so suddenly made his appearance and so suddenly disappeared again. Her elder sister would then answer her gently, with a still, clear face, and find other things to discuss. 3. Philippa's Lover A year later, a more distinguished person even than Lieutenant Lou Van Yelm came to Berlebeck. The great singer, Achille Papin of Paris, had sung for a week at the Royal Opera of Stockholm and had carried away his audience there as everywhere. One evening, a lady of the court, who had been dreaming of a romance with the artist, had described to him the wild, grandiose scenery of Norway. His own romantic nature was stirred by the narration, and he had laid his way back to France round the Norwegian coast. But he felt small in the sublime surroundings. With nobody to talk to, he fell into that melancholy in which he saw himself as an old man at the end of his career. Till on a Sunday, when he could think of nothing else to do, he went to church and heard Philippa sing. Then in one single moment he knew and understood all. For here were the snowy summits, the wild flowers, and the white Nordic nights, translated into his own language of music, and brought him in a young woman's voice. Like Lorne's Louvignon, he had a vision. Almighty God, he thought. Thy power is without end, and thy mercy reacheth unto the clouds. And here is a prima donna of the opera who will lay Paris at her feet. Achille Pepin at this time was a handsome man of forty with curly black hair and a red mouth. The idolization of nations had not spoiled him. He was a kind-hearted person and honest toward himself. He went straight to the yellow house, gave his name, which told the dean nothing, and explained that he was staying in Burleybeck for his health, and the while would be happy to take on the young lady as a pupil. He did not mention the opera of Paris, but described at length how beautifully Miss Philippa would come to sing in church to the glory of God. For a moment he forgot himself, for when the dean asked whether he was a Roman Catholic, he answered according to truth, and the old clergyman, who had never seen a live Roman Catholic, grew a little pale. All the same, the dean was pleased to speak French, which reminded him of his young days 
when he had studied the works of the great French Lutheran writer Lefebvre d'Etat, and as nobody could long withstand Achille Papin when he had really set his heart on a matter, in the end the father gave his consent and remarked to his daughter, God's paths run across the sea in the snowy mountains, where a man's eye sees no track. So the great French singer and the young Norwegian novice set to work together. Achille's expectation grew into certainty, and his certainty into ecstasy. He thought, I have been wrong in believing that I was growing old. My greatest triumphs are before me. The world will once more believe in miracles when she and I sing together. After a while, he could not keep his dreams to himself, but told Philippa about them. She would, he said, rise like a star above any diva of the past or present. The emperor and empress, the princes, great ladies, and belle esprit of Paris would listen to her and shed tears. The common people, too, would worship her, and she would bring consolation and strength to the wronged and oppressed. When she left the grand opera upon her master's arm, the crowd would unharness her horses and themselves draw her to the Café Anglais, where a magnificent supper awaited her. Philippa did not repeat these prospects to her father or her sister, and this was the first time in her life that she had had a secret from them. The teacher now gave his pupil the part of Zerlina in Mozart's opera Don Giovanni to study. He himself, as often before, sang Don Giovanni's part. He had never in his life sung as now. In the duet of the second act, which is called the seduction duet, he was swept off his feet by the heavenly music and the heavenly voices. As the last melting note died,